You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Welcome. It's great to be here on this, uh, what is traditionally called Palm Sunday. Some people call it the Sunday of the Passion. I don't know if you've heard that term as well. And you think passion. Do you realize that the, the Greek and the Latin that's behind the word passion is for suffering? And I don't know, if you've loved anyone, you suffered, <laughs> okay? Really, you do. When they go through things, right? When you see your child get hurt, it just eats you up inside, right? Because love is vulnerable and open, and so we see God's love and his passion for this world raw this week in the life of Jesus. And we're going to read a little of that, the Sunday of the Passion, which is the passionate love of God that he opens him up and is exposed and is vulnerable to this world in such ways. And we're going to read this, just a short part of Luke 23, but it might be worth you during the week to uh, just read through the account of his crucifixion, okay, this last week of life. But here, Luke 23, it was now about the sixth hour, that's 12 noon, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus called out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, as we stated a couple weeks ago in this Genius of Jesus series, already in Luke chapter 9, so just think of that, all the way in Luke chapter 9, it says that Jesus set his face to go towards Jerusalem. And from that point on, we see it's all about following Jesus. And then it's all about this week. And I don't know if you realize this, the four Gospels are really not biographies. You know, a biography would spend a lot of time on, you know, it's kind of chronologically going through the whole life. And of the 30-some years of Jesus' life, we don't know exactly how long he lived. It says he was about 30 when he started his public ministry. So that about 30 to 35, somewhere in there, is how long he lived. Um, Of the 33 years, one week is one-third of most of the Gospels this week. Palm Sunday through Easter. That's not a biography. It's more like a passion story with an introduction. And today we're going to see the passion, that love, that suffering love of Jesus Christ. And the question really is this. Oh, so the genius of Jesus in this is that he is committed. That's our theme today, that he is committed to the Father's will. He's committed to us. He has made a commitment way back at 951 to go to Jerusalem, and he knows what's going on. This is predicted. He tells the disciples three different... They don't get it, Land. They do not get it. They're like the Keystone Cops. Now, I just dated myself, but the Keystone Cops, they just bungle along the whole way along, and they don't get it. They're clueless, okay? I just redeemed myself with that, okay? A little, okay? Clueless, kind of ditzy along the way. They don't get it. And Jesus, though, this is the plan all along. It doesn't seem like a plan. It seems foolish. It seems absurd. It seems to be an, an accident, a mistake, and yet it is genius, and we're going to talk about that. But the question is, throughout this whole narrative, whether anybody really gets it, you know? 
And so that's the question Luke is really asking all the way along through um, this whole Palm Sunday through Easter time period. Do you get it? Do you know what's going on? Do you understand it? Do you get it? So Jesus on the cross, we didn't read this, but he cries out, the first word from the cross is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And he's really looking at the crowds who are hurling insults at him, and it's just chaotic and confusing and everything going on in front of him. And he basically says, Father, they're looking right at me, and they don't get it. Forgive them. They don't even know what's going on. But along the way, there are four different people or individuals or groups throughout this whole story that get it. And we're going to look at those because they get the genius. They get the genius of his commitment. They get the genius of who he is and what he's about. And it's astounding who gets it because um, it doesn't... Well, it's not logical, let's put it that way. You think the learned would get it? You think the people who, who have a cultural understanding of things, the people who would understand the whole Old Testament, they'd get it, they don't get it. Keystone cops, clueless, whatever you want to call them, they're kind of dumbfounded, they're, they don't get it. And you see, everybody's hurling insults at Jesus. Everybody is rejecting him the whole world seems to be turned against him. Even his disciples have fled. So most people aren't, but there are four that do. And so we're going to learn from this sermon basically three points that, that we're going to expand. And we're going to learn who gets it. We're going to learn how they get it. And we're going to learn why they get it. Okay? First of all, who gets it? The first of those who get it, is one of the criminals at the cross. Now, we usually talk about these guys as thieves, right? Have you ever heard that? The two thieves at the cross. You've probably heard jokes. Somebody on his deathbed says he brought his lawyer, and I can't remember who, probably, you know, someone else. And he goes, I wanted to always die like Jesus between two thieves, right? Yeah, you've heard all those. They probably weren't thieves because um, a thief, didn't get crucified for stealing something. They were a lot worse. They probably killed people along with their thievery. But one of the two criminals gets it. He says, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Okay? He gets it. You could call him the moral outsider because basically he's so bad he deserves to die, but he gets it. Now, the second person that gets it is the Roman centurion. He sits at the cross, and this is what it says. When he looks up, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praises God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Now, I know it doesn't look like much at first, but this is fascinating. Luke has... When you study his, his writing, it's amazing. So six different times in the Gospel of Luke, Luke uses that phrase, he praised God, and an individual speaks that, and each time it's used, 
It's for someone who gets the saving power of God going on here. And this Roman centurion who has seen a lot of deaths and has probably witnessed a lot of them himself, right? He's been an executioner many times. This one's different. This guy's innocent. What in the world is he doing up there? And why does he handle it the way he does? It's interesting in the Gospel of Mark, Mark records that when the Roman centurion saw how he died, he cried, surely this man was the son of God. He dies so differently than anyone else. He dies forgiving the people who are killing him. He dies welcoming. He dies serving. He dies in love and passion. And the Roman centurion got it. He is the racial outsider because he wasn't supposed to be part of the mix. Now, the third group that gets it are really um, a category, um, a, a cluster of women who are at the cross, okay? And the women are really social outsiders in this day and age. I don't know if you realize that at the time of Jesus, in the Roman world, women could not hold property. Yeah, most of the women here, yeah, we understand these things. Well, 2,000 years ago, they were considered more like property than they were. They didn't have the same rights, okay? And in the Jewish culture, women were considered unreliable witnesses and could not testify in the court of law. They weren't considered property, but they were still second class. They were the social outsiders. And yet it is women again and again in the Gospel of Luke especially, and women again and again in Jesus' ministry that seem to get it. They're the only ones. All the other disciples have fled. They're the only ones who follow all the way to the cross. Maybe they felt nobody's going to do anything to us. We're women. But they were the only ones there, the only ones. It's fascinating in the Gospel of Luke how this comes up again and again. There are 13 different women mentioned in the Gospel of Luke that are not mentioned in any other writing in the New Testament by name. Women, it says in the Gospel of Luke, bankrolled Jesus' ministry. Women followed along with Jesus. Women again and again are highlighted by Jesus. Jesus comes to women again and again, and they are social outsiders. Marginalized and excluded from social power in their day and age, they get it. So you all of a sudden start adding it up and you go like, wait a minute, the moral outsiders, the racial outsiders, and the social outsiders all get it. Ah, Jesus is after the outsiders, man, and that's who he goes for. And again and again, you can kind of use that pattern. It was the lepers... It was women of ill repute, it was tax collectors, it was a centurion, it was a Syrophoenician woman, it was this and that, and you could go like, yeah, that's it. And then we get to the fourth person at the cross, it occurs after the reading that we talked about, who gets it, and he breaks the pattern. It's Joseph of Arimathea. And it's like, wait a minute. He's one of the 70 rulers of Israel. He'd be like a today a senator of the United States. He had money, he had power, he was religious and morally, he was as inside as you could get in that day and age, and yet he is the one who asks for the body of Jesus and stands up to everyone else and takes him and buries him in his tomb. He got it. He got it. And then you're probably going like, wait a minute, so what is going on here? 
I thought Jesus was for the outsider, and that's who, he never accepts people just because they're outsiders. He doesn't, he does seek and search for the lost, and he has a preference many times, but he's really for anyone. And what you're really getting is this pattern that you're getting the fact that it's grace. Grace. That your social status, your wealth, your knowledge, your power, your position, your race, your ethnicity, all that stuff is not what determines whether you're in or you're out. It's grace. Everyone's equal at the foot of the cross. And you go back through this story and, wait, and you say, wait a minute, there, were more, there was two criminals. One didn't. There are many women, but these women did get it. There are a lot more soldiers there, but one Roman centurion. And there are many on the Sanhedrin, but Joseph of Arimathea did. It's really about God's grace. It's about the fact that God wants everyone to be saved. And yet, I can say, not with any contradiction in terms... But if you look at historically and through the Gospels, often the pattern still remains that women get it before men, and those who are poor get it before those who are wealthy, and those who are laity get it before the clergy, and those who are disempowered get it before those who are in power. Why? Well, Because success, wealth, power, status in general bring about a spiritual blindness in people's lives. They don't see themselves that, well, when you are full of all sorts of stuff, you get full of yourself and you don't see your need for Jesus. And here we see Jesus who in the midst of weakness and vulnerability and death saves the world. But so many people don't want to be in that position of weakness or vulnerability. Christian salvation occurs in the midst of weakness and vulnerability, and it is received in the matter of weakness and repentance and vulnerability. You don't get it any other way. So doesn't it make sense that those people who are out, those people who are socially or morally or um, racially excluded at points in their lives, those who are weak and struggling and know their own condition, that they would receive it more readily than those who seem to have their act together, who have it all together, who have all their, quote, needs met? Of course you understand that. That's who gets it. Now the question is, how do we get it? How do they get it? How do you get the genius of Jesus in all of this? 
okay? How do you have a life-changing encounter with this one who is on the cross? And I think we can look at the pattern. We can look at the, the example of the one criminal who is hanging on the cross next to Jesus who got it. And this is the three things that everyone has to do at some point. Everyone experiences in some way is what the criminal did at the side of Jesus. And that is first to buck the crowd, Secondly, to find a new center, and three, to live the paradox. Make sense to you now? Okay, we can move on. Yeah, okay. Okay, first of all, buck the crowd, and this is what happens. So, everyone's hurling insults at Jesus. Did you realize that? And the criminals themselves, in the other gospel, it says both criminals hurled insults at him at the beginning. And, and the religious people, the Sanhedrin members, the Romans, everybody spit and mocked him. Everybody was united in this one thing, get rid of Jesus out of this world. But then something changes for that one criminal. He bucks the crowd. He doesn't go along with everyone else. I love how Tim Keller puts it. He describes the gospel like this. If you believe in Christ, though you're more wicked and sinful than you dared believe, you're more loved and more completely accepted and forgiven in Christ than you ever dared hope for, all at the same time. Now, what's interesting today is just like what happened in the life of Jesus. The religiously moral people and the pagan secular people in Jesus' day both were united in one thing. Did you realize the Roman oppressors and occupiers and the religious elite in Jesus' day did not agree with anything? They were totally antithetically opposed to everything and everyone except they were united in this. They came together at the cross and they wanted to get rid of Jesus. You know, both sides of our wonderful culture wars in the United States look at the gospel, as I mentioned it, with that Timothy Keller and how he describes it, and they don't get it. They find it foolish. They don't understand it. You know, somebody sees that and goes like, the morally religious person will say, well, that makes a lot of sense. That first part, I really like that, that you are letting people know how bad they are and how they need to reform. But that second part where they're accepted unconditionally without having to change anything in their lives? You're just letting people get away with murder. And the morally religious people in our society would like to bring up more laws, more rules to try to get everybody in shape, and they turn the gospel into a parole hearing where, hey, okay, you get the, as long as, you'll get a little forgiveness, so long as, but if you're back in the clinker. And so they look at the gospel and they can't understand it because it seems like licentiousness. Now, on the other hand, the irreligious, secular individual would look at the gospel and say, hey, I love that second part about accepting everybody and welcoming everybody. But then they, th but that first part, oh my goodness, I can't believe you would say people are, no, they don't get it either. Neither the religious moralist or the irreligious secularist understands the gospel and the genius of it. 
And Paul said that was true in his day and age. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, and to us who are being saved is the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are being called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the gospel says both my sinfulness and God's grace are absolutely true. And only as I embrace both of those things do I have a life-changing experience. So I buck the crowd. Right? I buck the crowd. Did you realize the gospel, what's amazing is the crowds in Jesus' day, they never got it. I mean, all the way through his ministry, the crowd runs after him for more bread. The crowd runs away from him when he won't give it. The crowd celebrates on Palm Sunday and they want a king. And then the crowds cry out, crucify. Maybe they were different crowds, it doesn't matter, but you'll never seem in the gospel to ever get who Jesus is if you just go along with the crowd. And I'm afraid there have been a lot of people when I grew up in my church and my background, you know, they all just kind of went along with the crowd. They believe because everybody else believes. They believe because their parents believe. They believe this. They believe that. Oh, yeah, I guess. Well, you know, that's the thing to do. You never, yeah, millions of people across this world have come to faith in Jesus Christ, but it's never because they're part of a crowd. Your parents can't believe for you. Your ethnic background can't believe for you. Your hometown can't believe for you. Your, your nation doesn't believe for you. It's always one at a time, even though there's millions and millions. Everyone has to buck the crowd. Okay, second, find a new center. Now, this is rather fascinating. So there's this first thief who doesn't get it, and he cries out, and he says, Oh, Jesus, he's hanging there on the cross. You are the Christ? All right. Well, if you are the Christ then save yourself and us. Do you know how many people kind of pray like that? They say, hey, God, if you're really there, when they're in a bind, I mean, this guy is in the ultimate bind. He's dying on a cross, right? If you're really there, God, then get me out of this mess. I'll follow you, Lord, if you get me out of this mess. So do you know what's going on there? What's the real center, right? What's the real center? So there's a peripheral part of it, and there's a central part of those statements. Everything before the if is the peripheral, and everything after is the central issue. You know, it's kind of like, Lord, I will follow you if you get me that dream job. Guess what is the center? That dream job. That becomes your functional God. If you just give me this God, then... That's your functional center. Lord, God, I will follow you if you give me romance and a partner for life. Your partner for life is your Lord and Savior at that moment in time. Lord, I will follow you if my life, you know, you get me out of this mess, everything turns out nicely. Ah, then your comfort and your pleasure or your enjoyment becomes your functional center. You're really saying, Lord, I'll follow you if you let me serve this other Lord and Savior. 
Do you understand that contradiction in terms? It's just not going to work. The second thief doesn't do that. He doesn't say if. He is on the cross. He says, I deserve to die. Lord, I'm asking just remember me in your kingdom. Lord, I need you as the center. I need your kingdom as the center. Everything else is peripheral. And so, he finds a new center. And then finally, third, to live the paradox. Do you realize he says, when he's crying out to the other thief saying, hey, what are you doing? What are we doing? He says, we indeed justly deserve what we are. In other words, I deserve to die. He says in Luke 23, verse 41, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. In other words, I deserve to die. I am the criminal. I should be killed on this cross. What logically would follow? So punish me. But he doesn't say that. He says, Jesus, I deserve to die. Reward me. Remember me in your kingdom. Isn't that interesting? It's paradoxical. It is saying, yes, this is true of me, but yes, this is true of you. To live that paradox. Remember me in your kingdom. Bless me. Reward me. So the gospel is always forgiveness for sinners. You got to be a sinner to be forgiven. (laughs) If you want to be a friend of Jesus, you better be a sinner because that's the only kind he's got. Right? And Jesus does. And he remembers him. He says something even more profound. He says, today you will be with me. Not, hey, I'll remember you someday. You're going to be with me. That's powerful. So how or why can we get it? Okay? And here's the genius. It says in our text that darkness covered the land from 12 noon till 3. And you think, wow, that's great dramatic effect. Who was the cinematographer that came up with that one? You know, in a movie, you want to get some foreboding and feel. It was a lot more than that. It's fascinating. In the Old Testament, the prophets were really um, profound in a lot of ways. And they told, talked about this day of the Lord, a day of vengeance, a day of darkness again and again. And it was always a day of darkness. This day of vengeance or the day of judgment or the day of the Lord. And we see that in one passage after another. So in Joel chapter 2, it says the sun will be turned to darkness on that great and awesome day. And Amos 8, it says, and on that day I will make the sun go down at noon. And in Zephaniah, it says, it's a day of wrath and a day of ruin, a day of darkness and gloom. So what's going on here at the cross is not simply some cinematography, whatever. It's not a movie. It's not just to go, ooh, to give a feeling. It is actually judgment day. And Jesus Christ is so committed to you, he is experiencing the judgment I deserve, that you deserve, that the whole world deserves all at once in his person. He takes it all on. So you don't have to. This is the day. He does it all for you. So the question is, do you get it? Do you get it? And you might say right now, well, John, I've heard all this before. Yeah, it's a nice little review. I understand. I've comprehended all. I'm not asking you if you comprehended all the facts. 
Do you know what I mean? We're not taking a test on what happened at what time and what did Jesus say on the cross. And You know, this is not a religion class. I'm asking, do you get him? Are you going to embrace him? You can do it like the criminal or the Roman centurion or the women or even Joseph of Arimathea, but do you get him? Are you at the point where you can buck the crowd in our society, whatever that is, from the secularists to the overly religious moralists? Are you ready to buck the crowd? Are you able to say, hey, this is the center of what I need for my life? And are you also saying, I'm going to live in this paradox that while I am still a sinner, I am absolutely forgiven and I'm going to receive that grace? So I'm going to give you an opportunity today to say yes, moved by God's Spirit as we enter into Holy Week, and to lead us in a prayer that is so simple and yet so profound. It is the prayer, I think, that all of these individuals prayed in one form or another or just witnessed with their life in their own way. It's not like a formula that you're doing. It is an actual just an invitation to receive the gift and say yes. And so... Um, as simple as it is, I'm just going to ask you to kind of bow your heads, close your eyes, and if you want to, just to simply open up your hands and place them on your lap like you are ready to receive a great gift because that's who he is and what he is. And no one's praying this alone. We've all prayed it, probably prayed it many times over in many different circumstances, but it's a prayer that we're praying today because we know who we are, but we know who... Our Lord is the genius of his love, his vulnerability, his compassion, his sacrificial death for us. So just repeat after me as I pray right now. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I didn't get you. Now I do. Be the center of my life. Your death is mine. Your resurrection is mine. You are completely mine. I am completely yours. Have all of me. Thank you. Amen.